my paintings now, my abstract paintings really grew out of that love for still life. And I recognized as I was painting those that what I really love is space and a very modernist sense of the two-dimensional versus three-dimensional. So I love to create kind of an illusion of depth and then all of a sudden contradict that by throwing a very two-dimensional plane in. And that's something that I still do a lot in my work. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 73rd episode, we have artist Suzanne Kamen on to discuss her great paintings. Her show, Greater and Lesser Vehicles, opens January 28th and runs through February 22nd at the Painting Center in New York. So we talk at great length about her development as an artist, as a painter, and of course where she's at now in her studio practice. So please stay tuned for that whole lengthy, in-depth interview. Of course, if you've never heard of Studio Break, we want to let you know that we are a podcast and blog site. We feature a variety of different artists that come on. They talk to me. I ask them all sorts of intrusive questions about their studio practice, of course, and have them on for your listening pleasure. Again, you can access any of the artists that we've had through the archive function. It's right there on the left sidebar. Each of the podcasts include images of the artist's work, links to their websites, and these lengthy interviews. You can also find us in iTunes if you want to subscribe to the podcast that way. It's a great way to find out about new artists that we have on. If you want, you can use our handy share buttons that allow you to access all of your favorite social media. So if you happen to be on Facebook, you can find our Facebook page there. So please like it and follow it again. We preview some of the guests that we have coming up on the podcast as well as make exhibition announcements and opportunities, things like that. So please like our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter at Studio Break. You can follow me at David Linaway. And our Tumblr page is Studio-Break. All right, now with all that out of the way, here is this wonderful interview with Suzanne. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm happy to be joined this morning by Suzanne Kamen. How are you doing today? I'm okay, David. Thanks. How are you? I'm excellent. And again, I've been I've been obliterating your name. Hopefully, we, now that that's out of the way, edits will make it all uh, snazzy and beautiful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, where, where are you speaking to us this morning from? Uh, again, we were talking about the bitter chill that's kind of gripped uh, the United States. I am uh, in Chile, Newark, New Jersey, nine degrees here. Excellent. Excellent. Yes, it's it's a balmy nine degrees up from four degrees yesterday. So within a few days, we'll be up to like almost 60 degrees. So, yes, the weather is crazy. But excellent for making studio work. So, uh, you know, we're, <laughs> we're talking about that, uh, the hermetic lifestyle of an artist. So or at least sometimes it can feel that way. Yeah, sometimes we want it to be. So and, and, and so you're from New York. You're from you were you were raised in uh, New York. Is that right? Um, yeah, well, I was born in Manhattan, and uh, my family was part of the great white flight of the 70s. So I was there until I was uh, seven or eight years old, and then I moved to a tiny town in western Massachusetts, which was a huge change for me. Um, and we stayed there for only about a year and a half, and I think nobody in my family could stand being in such a small town, and we ended up moving to Toronto, Canada, when I was about ten. Um, so we we moved. As a as a Midwesterner living outside of the city and only visiting them, I can only imagine going from uh, something that's so active to, you know, a much more quaint kind of existence or something like that. So yes, it, it was. It was uh, it's uh, Lenox, Massachusetts, which. When I lived there, it was a quaint little town, and now it's a quaint, uh, probably slightly slightly larger little town. It's, I think, kind of a touristy place in the summer. But it was such a huge change for me. Um, I remember I couldn't sleep at night because I was so afraid of the silence. You know, I was so used to having fire engines, you know, making noise driving down the street at night, 
um, or just knowing that I had neighbors so close, that was very comforting to me. And so then when we moved to such a small town, it just felt so, I felt so alone. Um, And it's quite the opposite of the way I think a lot of people go, which is moving to the city from a small town, that seeming intimidating and and, uh, very different. So it's just, I think, what you're used to. Being in the city, you, you have so many museums and so many things to kind of absorb. Was that something that you were, you know, really interested in when you were growing up? Yes, though I guess I don't remember it being so much an interest as something that I don't know. I want to say it was forced on me, but I guess that's not really a good way of describing because it makes it sound like it was against my will. I just remember that it was something that we did as a family, you know, and it was part of my life, uh, especially in New York. I have very fond memories of the Museum of Natural History as a child and the Museum of Modern Art as a child and having a very hard time adjusting to the new building um, at MoMA because I have such fond memories of the old building. Um, And, you know, for me, it's, it's such a positive thing. I, I know that there are so many people that feel like, you know, they want to raise a child in the suburbs and they don't want to live in the city when they're having children and not having children, perhaps I'm not really qualified to comment on that, but I just feel like, as a teenager, I know it was very important for me to be in the city. It was just great for me to be able to meet up with a friend and go to a movie on the weekend and not have to worry about how am I going to get someplace. Uh, so to me, the idea of living in the suburbs, I just wonder, like, don't you get really bored? <laughs> right, right. Um, but I guess it also depends on the kind of kid you are. You know, I was not a um, an athletic child. Nobody in my family was particularly athletic. I didn't have much interest in playing outside and especially in Canada. I, I hate the cold and you know, I didn't want to be outside playing street hockey. Right. So uh, the city was important to me, but if you're an athletic child and you like playing outside and, you know, running around, then maybe the city isn't the best place. Toronto is, is that right on the other side? Not literally the Buffalo border. Buffalo would be the closest city in the United States. And then it's about maybe an hour, an okay. hour drive from okay. Buffalo to Toronto. So it's it's very close to the border. I can't remember what percentage it is, but it's something, some some large percentage, if not the majority of Canadians are all squished down in that very southern part of Ontario. Like they're all trying to huddle around the fireplace, you know, for <laughs> warmth. Well, and, and so I guess how how did you – you've already described that maybe uh, playing hockey wasn't your thing. So um, was did, did art replace that for you or how did, how did you get invested in art? As far as I know, I – and as far as I've heard, I drew from the time that I could hold a crayon or a pencil. Um, I have, you know, kind of – hazy memories of being at a little table in my room when we lived in New York, um, you know, and and drawing. Um, But the thing that stands out most for me is, um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Steiner, Rudolf Steiner education or the Rudolf Steiner schools or the Waldorf schools. Um, But when I lived in New York, and it's probably to a certain extent the same now, um, if you're a, a parent with some means, you want to send your child to a private school, perhaps a little bit less so now than when I was a child. Um, and so my parents sent me to the Rudolph Steiner School in, uh, in Manhattan. And the Steiner School is, um, the philosophy is based very much on uh, kind of nurturing the artistic creativity of, of, of the child. And so you, you color everything and you decorate everything and everything that you do somehow is associated with um, either visual art or some kind of creative process, um, you know, just something like doing math when I was an older student and going to the Waldorf School in Toronto you know, you would decorate the pages of your books. Everything was done in colored pencil. Um, so it made something that was perhaps in 
a different school setting, sort of a rote process into something that was creative. And I just love that. Uh, my brother went to the Rudolf Steiner School as well, and he hated it. And it seems kind of strange because to me, it seems like how could any child not respond to being creative? But, you know, it's like the the indoor-outdoor raising of a child kind of thing, I guess, or whether you're athletic, whether you're artistic, you know, I guess some children don't respond to it, but I, I loved it. Um, and I think that it really did nurture that part of me. Um, and so when we left New York, I was very sad to leave my friends and to leave that school. Um, when we went to Massachusetts, I was in a public school for a year and a half, and it just, I mean, there are a lot of reasons why I think I felt this way, just like what I was describing about going from a big city to a small town, being, um, you know, having the activity and the, the noise of the city versus the quiet and the calm of the country. I'm sure all these things play into it. But to me, my memories of public school are all gray. You know, everything just seemed gray. And it's kind of funny when I, when I describe it to you because I never made that association between the decorate the decorating with the colored pencils versus doing your homework in a pen or a pencil. I'm just kind of thinking of it as, I don't know, like a weather thing. Like I just don't remember sunshine, but there was sunshine, but it's just how I process those memories. Um, and then when we moved to Toronto, I went back to the Waldorf school for um, a couple of years before my parents realized that living in Toronto, they could send me to a public school and, you know, it wasn't going to be um, like in New York where my education would suffer. So they, they took me out of the Waldorf school. And again, it was very, it's a very sad thing for me. Um, but by that point, I think that part of me had really been nurtured and was very much a part of who I was. Um, and then I just continued with it. And actually, when we lived in Massachusetts, I took private art classes. And I think I continued with that sort of thing. And was it mostly painting or, or, or drawing specific or just every everything? Um, not everything. I'm not an everything sort of artist. And I really, I'm so envious and um, amazed by people who are so fluent at so many different things. I feel I'm very narrow in my focus and I feel very narrow in my ability. Um, painting. I always love painting. I mean, I, I've been told that I always drew, but my gut tells me it was always painting. That's what I loved. I love making pictures. Um, and I, I'm sure I loved color, but I just loved the process of putting paint on a surface one of the one of the standard kind of things that I ask people is obviously you know just how how obviously we break down and explore all those things. Was there anything that you were interested you know uh starting out you know like like painting one thing versus the other the figure or or was it always kind of an interest in abstraction and you know more of what your work looks like currently um I guess there's a it, that's an interesting question um I think considering my my background. There are two things that were happening for me simultaneously when I was growing up in terms of art, and one was visual art and one was music. Um, I, my family, there's, there are no artists in my family. Nobody was creative in my family. Um, I know, especially because when I went to art school, it seemed like all the talented kids came from families of artists, and it was just another reason to feel insecure, um, like, you know, I'm not really an artist because it's not in my blood. Um, and it may very well be in my blood, but I just don't think that it was, that was a, a value that was very strongly held by my grandparents and my grandparents were the ones who kind of pushed people to go in various directions professionally. Right. Um, I think my father is actually um, probably very artistic, but just never, never explored that part of him. But he, he, loves classical music and there was a lot of music in my house growing up. Um, my mom played the piano. I started playing the piano when I was five, I think, and then switched to the violin when I was six. Um, but it was always classical music and I was so bored <laughs> practicing classical music. And I'm sure by the time I got to high school, I would have loved to play the bass or the guitar, but 
that was just not allowed. And then in terms of visual art, one thing about the Rudolf Steiner School and Waldorf education is there's a real, there's a way that art is practiced and taught that focuses, at least in the earlier years when I was, um, you know, when I was involved as, a, as an earlier child versus once you get to high school, um, by which time I had left. But everybody makes the same picture. Like the teacher will do a demonstration and everybody makes the same picture. And I suspect that the idea is that each student's individuality will come out through the process of making the same picture. And I say it's interesting because I see a a similarity between that and, and classical music training, which, you know, is very, is very strict and it's kind of harsh in terms of the kinds of feedback you get from teachers. I remember my wrist being slapped a lot, you know, if my wrist would kind of cave in playing the violin and your wrist is supposed to be out. So I think that that, that hindered my feeling of, um, maybe confidence in my own voice. You know, I did start taking private lessons, uh, private classes, art classes when I was say eight and then continued through high school. Um, and I, I remember really liking abstraction. It's like a preteen and doing these, what I would call now is these kind of pseudo suprematist constructivist kinds of paintings of, you know, just shapes um, but then when I got to high school, it was the real typical, you know, surrealist, you know, I love Magritte kind of paintings, you know, just what I would call kind of trite teenage work. And I, I just, I didn't have any experience with what I would call, you know, more sophisticated art training. I went to museums a lot, you know, as a, as a child, but... There was nobody who was teaching me, you know, this is this is sophisticated art and this is less sophisticated mm-hmm. art. So by the time I got to college and I saw some of the things that other students were doing, I was just amazed. I was like, wow, you know, there's all this stuff out there that's so much more sophisticated than what I had been doing when I was in high school. But in terms of how I ended up studying art and in art school to begin with, uh, you know, it was just kind of like, well, I like to do that. So I guess I'll go and do that. And, you know, I see kids now. I, I taught in a private school in Manhattan for a little while. And so I got a real insider's view of how involved parents are in students' college application process. Right, right. And I think it was a little bit my family and maybe a little bit more the times there wasn't so much investigating into all the options when I was a kid. And part of that I think is the internet, but on the other hand, I think most students probably traveled to the schools where they wanted to end up. Whereas for me, it was like, I actually remember this, this now my grandparents were always sending us catalogs from American schools because they wanted me and my brother to end up back in the United States. And my parents were like, we don't want to spend American tuition money on American tuition. We can get a good education in Canada for a fraction of the price. But I remember getting this catalog from uh, my grandparents and, you know, it's the, the, the gray kind of sunny comparison. Again, I remember this warm, bright yellow cover of this catalog and on the inside there was this picture of these students playing volleyball on a beach and I hated volleyball and I was as I said so unathletic but it just looked so inviting I was like that's where I want to go to school and that's how I made my choice and I remember students um, in high school saying to me so you know where are you going to school 
And I was like, well, it's some place called the Rhode Island School of Design. And, you know, it sounded like some technical school to me. So I'm really lucky that it actually turned out to be a good school because I could have ended up at, you know, who knows where just because there was a picture of these people playing volleyball. Um, So it wasn't a particularly informed decision. And it wasn't even based so much on, you know, I want to go there because it's got a good art program. Or that I really want to study art. I mean, I, I did want to study art, but I applied to RISD and I applied to Yale because that's where my uncle went. And I applied to Barnard because that's where my mother went. And I applied to Columbia because that's where my father went. And it was actually the first year that was, that was, uh, it was the first year Columbia was accepting female students into their, you know, all male college, um, which gives away my age to a certain extent. But there you have it. I didn't apply to any schools in Canada because at that time and up until recently, Ontario had five years of high school. It was the only province in the country that had five years of high school. But if you wanted to go to any school in Canada, you had to go to the fifth year. And I hated high school. I hated school. I wanted to leave and I wanted to get out of Toronto. And so the only place I could go was out of the country. And somehow I convinced my parents to help me to go. Um, I got into Barnard and the decision ended up being between Barnard and, and RISD. I thought, well, I think I want to study art. And Barnard didn't even really have an art program. I think you had to take courses outside of the school if you wanted to get a degree in art. And you could do it, but it wasn't this great you know, program, certainly not like RISD. And, you know, I was like, well, it's an art school, so I'll go there. I don't know. I think it was just I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't even know that people were fine artists still. I just thought, well, I'll become a commercial artist. I love to paint. I had no experience in, say, formal design. You know, there weren't any design classes in my high school, but um, I just didn't think that I could just be a fine artist. I thought I had to make money somehow, some other way. So I'll go into commercial art, whatever that is. Um, And then when I was at RISD, that was when I first was exposed to figure drawing, some of the, you know, more classical sides of, of art making. But I didn't really start to paint proper in college until my sophomore year because there were no painting classes. It was 2D design, 3D design and, and drawing. But I first thought I was going to go into graphic design until I realized that I couldn't cut a straight line and couldn't work very well with an X-Acto knife. Um, And then I thought I would go into apparel design because I loved clothes. And my friend said, well, you'd be good as a fashion designer. And I took one course for a day and realized I couldn't make something two-dimensional, like a piece of cloth become something three-dimensional. I think in two dimensions, I'm not a good three-dimensional thinker. And it was um, a class, uh, it was a two-dimensional design class. My last assignment was a, a painting assignment. And I remember my teacher who was very, he was one of these very fastidious, very picky, perfectionistic 2D design teachers came up to me and he said to me, have you ever thought about going into painting? And I thought, no, but thank you so much for saying that to me because it just gave me the permission to do it. I thought, yes, this is what I want to do. This is what I, what a fun thing to do to just spend all my time painting and my identity as a painter, I think, really formed like it in my memory. It was like in a flash. I thought, this is me. And that's what I did. And I didn't know what to paint. Of course, you started doing some basics, but it wasn't like now when I think there's a lot more uh, kind of technical things that are taught now, a lot of more formal technique that's taught in art school now than when I was in school, when it was just more like, well, you know, go paint a painting. Was it oil paint just from the start in terms of an exploration or was it acrylic? In high school, it was acrylic. And then in college, when I went to school, I don't think you were allowed to use acrylic. You know, I don't <laughs> remember anybody using acrylic. And acrylic wasn't as good then as it is now. This was pre-gold and paint. 
it was, it was oil. It was definitely oil. And that was the thing I was used to working in acrylic. And I remember the first assignment that I had in my sophomore painting class, the teacher had us go and paint a landscape in chromatic black and, and in white. And um, I was so unsophisticated in my use of, of value. I remember my painting being basically like black and white <laughs> and maybe right. a gray. And there was a student who brought in this painting, and I think this will always stay with me. It was these beautiful chromatic grays, you know, all these kind of middle value uh, grays, kind of brownish grays. And I remember no pure white and no pure black. And I just felt so unsophisticated compared to this. And I saw that and I immediately recognized how much more sophisticated it was in my palette and than my palette. And I, since then have been very nervous about value. Like I'm, I'm very conscious of value in my paintings and I'm nervous about extreme contrast, which doesn't mean that I don't use extreme contrast or that extreme contrast and value isn't a good thing, but I'm very conscious of it because I remember my values as, as being very unsophisticated. What kind of subject matter became interesting to you? I just had no idea what to paint. And, you know, we started off painting some still life. And I remember one major figure painting my sophomore year. Um, but then it was kind of, you're on your own. And again, like I, I felt like everybody else knew what to paint. You know, it seemed to me that everybody else knew what to paint and everybody seemed to have some concept that seemed to me sophisticated or, you know, it was either political or it was social or, you know, just something, they had something. And I felt like I didn't have something and, and what I really wanted to do was, was just paint. I actually transferred from RISD to the National College of Art and Design in Dublin, Ireland. And I was there for one semester and I realized I want to go back to RISD. But when <laughs> I was in, in, in Ireland, they have five years in art degree. So it was, I was put in with students who would have been basically seniors at RISD because they had one more year of painting than I had. I just, I remember being there and thinking, I just want to paint a still life. Like, I just want to, I just, I don't want to have to think about this. I don't want to have to think about what I'm going to paint. I just want to have something. But I felt like I couldn't do it because everybody was doing these advanced things. And when I came back to RISD, um, I, I spent a semester painting what I think were these really stupid paintings um, that I don't even want to describe, but they were kind of based on my experience in, in Ireland because I felt like I should be talking about that. Like I, I, my work should somehow reflect that even though it was incredibly trite and, and uh, self-conscious. Um, but it was in my senior year at RISD, I actually became friends with this group of painters, some of whom were in the painting department a year behind me and some of whom were in the illustration department and they all painted still life. And I felt like I had met my people. Like I had the support, like it was okay to just do this. And it's so, I, I actually refer to this experience a lot with my students because I think it's a very um, good, it's very telling of reality versus our own perceptions and, and how I think students should really try to be true to themselves and, and what they want to do. My second semester, my uh, senior year, when I was focusing on my degree project, it was all still life. And there were small paintings that were very modest and they were kind of influenced, I think, heavily by Cezanne. They were much thicker and they were all very sunlit little scenes of these oranges and, and pears my senior advisors loved my paintings and I ended up graduating uh, with all A's my final semester. And it was because they were, they were honest, you know, they were very sincere paintings um, that weren't about anything particularly monumental or, or important kind of like outside the, the world of, of painting. Um, but they were important to me. And, uh, 
since then, still life is the thing that I've really fallen back on when I've been in a rut or, you know, when I don't know what to do. It's comforting to know that I can just grab something and paint what's in front of me. My paintings now, my abstract paintings really grew out of that love for still life. And I recognized as I was painting those that what I really love is space and a very modernist sense of the two-dimensional versus three-dimensional. So I love to create kind of an illusion of depth and then all of a sudden contradict that by throwing a very two-dimensional plane in. Right. And that's something that I still do a lot in my work. So when I got to graduate school, I just felt like I want to make that shift. Um, and part of that grew out of my feeling insecure about just doing still life. And I also knew that there was no way I was going to get out of graduate school, you know, back then painting still life. And I needed to do something, say, you know, I'll, I'll use the word more ambitious, even though I feel like it's still life can be, you know, incredibly ambitious and, and it can be enough. Well, and so it's interesting because it makes me wonder too, like how your color becomes informed. You know, you talked about having to do like a, a black and white landscape painting and, and kind of talking about the value aspect of it. But is that something then that's, that's kind of, you know, forced you to, you know, to sit and observe the way that, you know, light is hitting something, the way that certain colors will look in relationship to other colors that then informs w like what you do now? I at least like to believe that my color is very much informed by those still life paintings and that painting from life is really important. I think the wonderful thing about the art world now is that it's so eclectic and there's so many different kinds of work that are shown and are acceptable. And as I, I referred to acrylic, you know, acrylic um, being so much more utilized now than when I was in school, I think lends itself to different kinds of colors. So I don't know if I can say that it's important for everybody, but I think it's important for me mm -hmm. um, to have worked from life. And I think my colors are really informed by those still life paintings that I remember as being very warm and very golden and sunlit. And I don't know, this reference to, to warm light and sunlight, I'm aware that it keeps popping up and it's something that is important to me, which doesn't mean that I, you know, don't make a cold looking painting sometimes and I don't use blues, but it's, it's the natural light of the sun, I think, that has had a very strong impact on the way that I use color. Well, and so in terms of then kind of giving yourself permission to kind of really explore uh, painting, I mean, it, so it sounds like a lot of that was really just about kind of letting yourself go in, in, in terms of that regard. So, I mean, what was it like to be then in graduate school in, in terms of exploring it? I mean, was it something where you're investigating different processes? How was it specific? And especially you moved to uh, uh, the, the West Coast, if I'm not mistaken, too. Is that also like a huge shift, I would imagine? It was. It was it was very much a huge shift for me. And actually, you know, talking about light, certainly the uh the light of the Bay Area figurative painters is is something that's very kind of large in, in my mind and I think of again as being very golden and I think that that uh has, has had an impact on me. But culturally and and uh you know, physically being on the West Coast had a very big impact on me. Um, and I think was very good for my painting. I, um, when I got to graduate school and I wanted to make that shift, I, to, to me, abstraction was very um, mysterious. I didn't know how to make an abstract painting. I didn't believe that it was just a matter of you know, flinging a bunch of paint at a canvas. I, I wanted to have no the mechanics of how to put together an abstract painting, uh, even if it was my abstract painting, I felt like there was kind of a transition that I needed to go through. And what I did was I read every book on decoding that I could get my hands on. And I learned a lot about this process. Um, one thing that I, I started doing was decoding apparently used uh you know safflower oil and this was back at a time when you couldn't buy safflower oil at the art supply store so i was going to the grocery store and buying safola which i don't even know if it exists anymore but i was buying safola and mixing it with my 
paint and a bit of water. Um, and that's de Kooning apparently mixed a little bit of water in with safflower oil and oil paint. And I noticed in doing that, that it created this very frothy kind of like, almost like having, um, like when you beat up egg white, like a meringue kind of frothiness mm-hmm. that made the paint kind of uh, light and fluffy. And it was easy to kind of fling it that way. And it produced this very different, very um, specific effect. That love of de Kooning really was the thing that helped me to make that transition. And then after de Kooning, I should say, uh, through a teacher of mine, I was uh, introduced to the early work of Al Held, and I know there's been a lot of interest uh, in the past year or so, certainly, uh, in Al Held uh, with the uh, big show of his in New York at Time and Read, which was an amazing show. But what people know of, of Al Held is usually his later work or his mid, uh, mid-career work, but the early works of his that are very... Um, they're much more expressionistic and very, very thick and crusty. That had a big, uh, a big influence on me. And I started to, I went from working very small to starting to work very large. People were working large in the 80s, and I felt like that was something that I, I needed to do. And it was partly that, that this is what you do as a painter in the 80s. And it was also, I think, an insecurity of mine as a woman, I felt like I need to prove myself, you know, I need to prove that I'm as good as a man and I'm as capable and as strong as a man. And I started to make these paintings that were bigger and bigger. And by the end of my graduate education, I was making paintings in in panels. So I would, I mean, they were stretched on canvas, but there were like three separate canvases that I would bolt together because I couldn't get paintings out of my studio. They were too big to move. Um, They were about eight, eight and a half feet tall by 14, 15 feet long. So pretty monstrous. They were getting monstrous and, and beyond my limitations as a, you know, relatively small framed woman. And they got thicker and thicker. And there was, I mean, they, they were very obsessive and, um, I remember fashioning some of these early paintings on Al Held paintings. And there was one point my grandfather had had passed away and I flew back to New York for the funeral. And I came back to, uh, to San Francisco and was in my studio and um, sitting back from one of my paintings and it kind of clicked for me what these paintings were about. And, you know, it's very, very heavy, um, I mean, they're physically very heavy, but the content uh, is, is very heavy. They, I mean, basically, in a in a word, they were about death, and they were about my anxiety about death and certain emotional things that I was going on uh, that were going on for me at the time. Um, and but that really helped me to focus my paintings more, and it helped me to realize, okay, like I, these things need to be dark and they need to be thicker and and the San Francisco landscape or the Bay area landscape, I think also started to have an effect on my work and my fear of earthquakes uh, started to really play into this. And I, I lived there. I was in graduate school there in 1989 during the big San Francisco earthquake, which was really life altering. And I realized also at that point that there were these kind of land masses that were appearing in my work and these fissures and cracks that were appearing um, they, they were inches thick. I mean, they, they got to be quite monstrous, as you said. Um, the comparison when I was there to Jay DeFeo was mm-hmm. made, um, I think, somewhat fairly, somewhat unfairly. But they were they were monumental the way the way her paintings were, and also, um, as I said, very obsessive. And they just got thicker and thicker, and, and eventually there were some life circumstances that that took place that made me have to change the way I worked. But I remember feeling at that point, like so lucky that I knew what I wanted my work to be about. And I don't know if other people struggle with this. For me, it felt very reassuring that I was, that I felt very passionate and very committed to what I was doing. Like, this is an important thing. I mean, it's a very heavy uh, subject matter. 
you know, who can deny that, that death is, you know, not an important subject matter. No, I... It's, it's something that I think, something that everybody can, can relate to to a certain extent, this kind of obsession with or, or interest in. Um, it's the human condition. That's what I was looking for. It's part of the human condition. So, it, you know, it was something that I felt... Uh, strongly about. When I look at your paintings now, it seems to me that the the process and the surface, like the the way that things are layered up, then that seems very important. Uh-huh. I guess how do you explore that in terms of the studio? I mean, obviously, artists kind of tend to, especially that kind of work in maybe a series of paintings, kind of almost develop their own their own language of kind of making mm-hmm. and exploring things. And I'm certain mm-hmm. that, you know, you put in that work. But I mean, could you kind of give us a little bit of insight in, in terms of how it works in, in your studio and in terms of like, do you work on, are you working <laughs> on a bunch of different paintings at the same time? Mm-hmm. Does it change, you know, kind of from one painting to the next, the way that you know, want, want it to have like a certain feeling or a certain look? Mm-hmm. How, how do you I guess, how is that process of exploration, you know, active when you're working through a new series of work or whatever it is that you're currently working on when you're not kind of going back to still life? And it's interesting that you said that earlier because it reminds me of the way that I I took a break from essentially the body of work that I've been making for a long time to to do a bunch of landscape paintings this summer. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. I can kind of appreciate that sense of balance. But, you know, what's it like being in that studio for you? Yeah, I just want to say that actually that, that's something that I really responded to in your work, that uh, bringing together of abstraction and representation and, and to your obvious love for and very strong uh, ability to paint plein air paintings. And it, that's something that I, you know, kind of, let's say, struggle with um, my my desire to do both and the fact that I only have so much time in the day and that as an artist, as a, as a contemporary artist, you know, I have to focus and you actually have managed to integrate both things really well in your work, which I think is very admirable for me. And, and in a way, you know, I'm, I'm envious of that, that you can find a way that you can explore both what I'm assuming are our loves of, of yours. And it's something that I haven't totally managed to do. There are things like, as I said, color that filter in from my experiences still life painter, but I haven't found a way to integrate objects into my work. And I don't, I don't foresee that happening, but the tactile qualities of paint have always been um, of interest to me. And I'm just, you know, I'm in love with beauty. You know, I want to make a beautiful painting. And it, it comes at a time when there's so much focus on painting that isn't beautiful. You know, the whole kind of provisional painting, the casualist kind of sensibility of trying to make something that looks unfinished. For me, you know, I want something to look very polished and very finished. And I want not to make something ugly. I want to make something beautiful. Um, and I've always been in love with beautiful surfaces. Are they worked a lot, you know, the, the paintings? Because that's the, some of the dark surfaces especially are so, like, I don't know, uh, sensual, for lack of a better word. You know, they become so rich, you know, with subtleties that I, it just, I, I don't know. It, it's interesting because, again, it leaves me to this point where when I'm looking at them, you know, it really, I don't know, makes me just wonder about about the surface of them. Good, because that's what I want you to do. I want you to wonder about their making. And I, and of course, as somebody who works with process, I get a lot of questions about how did you make these? I always answer that with, or I try to answer it. It's not easy for me to answer it because I'm somebody who's actually naturally an open book. And I, and I try to rein that in and be very um, careful about, you know, not, exposing too much of, of myself in all different arenas in my private life, in my mm-hmm. professional life. But sure. um, I, I've, I've learned to say, you know, I, I can't tell you that because <laughs> I, want, I want the process to, to remain a mystery. And as, somebody, as the maker of those paintings, I feel like it looks obvious because I know how I make them. So I right, feel like, right. of course, it, you know, it looks like this was done and this was done. And, and there's so much more interesting process, I think, that's taking place now 
in painting that I think people know a lot more about different ways of, of applying paint and, and removing paint. Um, so, you know, it may be obvious to, to some people and it may be mysterious to other people. But, you know, I, I can say that I do go back and forth between painting and using a little bit of Photoshop. And I, I try to keep that as a, at a real minimum. And, it, and that depends on the painting. There are some paintings that are made completely without Photoshop. And there are some paintings where I will, um, if I get to a really problematic part and I feel like I'm not sure where to go, I'll take a picture of the painting and I'll, I'll put it into Photoshop and I'll try different options. And then maybe I'll try to apply one of those options to the painting. And then inevitably some painting thing, of course, will, will happen that can't be predicted and, and maybe it'll go in a different direction. And then maybe that will be re-entered into Photoshop or maybe that will take over. Photoshop is, uh, it can be a dangerous tool and it can be a wonderful tool. Um, I do not want my paintings to be pre-planned. I never pre-plan a painting. For me, I think it, it would be rare that I would see a painting that was completely planned out beforehand that I would really love. Mm-hmm. And maybe there are all kinds of things like that out there that I don't know about. But to me, the most wonderful moments in a painting are the results of accidents. And I think that, you know, certainly as a teacher, you can probably relate to that. I think teachers always try to kind of drill that into their students to let go, to let go to the process of making things and not try to control the process because the more you try to control something, the less life it's going to have in it and the tighter it's going to be. But my paintings are very much about kind of the the harmonizing of conflicting you know, we could say conflicting states of being or conflicting processes, conflicting approaches. Um, So there is the very precise, clean edges juxtaposed against a very impromptu passage. I want both of those things to exist in my work. And actually, too, I didn't address your question about um, do I work on more than one thing at the same time? It's a it's a good question for me because it's something again that I wrestle with. I force myself to work on more than one thing at the same time, but it's not in my nature. I tend to get very obsessed with whatever it is that I'm working on, and it's hard for me to pull myself away from it. When I was younger, I only worked on one thing at a time, and I think it was not good for my work. Um, I think you really need to step back from your work and you need to balance what's happening in the studio. And if you don't get perspective on that one painting, you can just kind of like work it and work it to death. You know, it's like the whole taking a break, you know, walking away from your work and coming back and all of a sudden you see it more objectively. I think if you work on more than one thing at a time, you can get obsessed with five different things or you can, you know, I guess the extension of that is you're not obsessed as obsessed with any one thing. So it helps to keep things fresher. Yeah. I I think that's so interesting because, you know, you, I think artists, even if, even if you've been out, you haven't been in school forever, I think it's very easy to kind of get wrapped up in something. And so I I think, especially responding to that idea of uh, being able to jump around. Cause I, I remember, (laughs) I remember being that painter, the one that's like, you know, I'm going to paint this all day until this painting is finished. Yeah, you know, and then yeah. it's something different where you're, you know, your life is changing. You're having to take on, um, I don't know, different ways of working to adapt to it. So I think that's also yeah. something that becomes interesting because then you come back and you know you realize that you can take breaks or set things up so that you know you walk back into your your studio and you see something that you haven't seen in a day and it maybe clicks differently too. So I, th- I think that's interesting the way that you know processes and the way that we think about our work also changes over time because. You know, very time at various times, it's very clear, and then you know, it could be you know changed very quickly. Yeah, it's it's true. The um, the idea of how work and being an adult with all these different responsibilities factors into your studio practice and and how you have to adapt to those those 
obligations. And, you know, it's, it's that feeling when you're in the studio, like, I don't want anything to interrupt this. You know, I resent having to go to work. I don't want to leave. But in the end, it's, it's actually a very good thing that you do have to leave. At least for me, it is. Sure. I've been wrestling with a painting this past week and it's actually, I, I'm aware of the fact that it's a bad thing. Um, you know, I have this show coming up and I, I finished everything that was going to be in the show. I have enough work for the show, but there's one painting um, and I'm starting to prepare new surfaces. So I only have one painting left that I'm working on. And I wanted to have, you know, you always want to have the the freshest, most recent thing in, in the show. And I wanted to finish this thing. And I kept telling myself, it's okay if you don't have it. You have enough work. It's going to sure. <laughs> have an effect on the painting. You may not, you may put this most recent thing in the, in the show and then three months down the line, look at it with some distance and say, hmm, maybe I shouldn't have put that in the show. Um, and it ended up, the painting didn't work out. And I, I told myself, I don't have enough time to get it done before the show at this point anyway. But I, I really was hitting my head against the wall of this thing and feeling like, oh, my God, I can't paint. I'm no good. You know, all right, these things right. that probably everybody feels. And I, but I was, I'm able to tell myself now, you need some distance from it. Prime those other surfaces. Get them ready. Start working on other things. And it will help that painting. Whereas when I was younger, it would have been like, yeah, like what you said, like, I'm going to work this thing until I get it. Like, I want to sure. feel like I can beat this thing. And now I know that the best way to beat it is to not care about it. <laughs> well, and it's interesting, too, because it's that always seems to happen to me before a show, you know, especially if you're it's it's weird because artists have so many different ways of working. Some people will be very focused for a, a very short amount of time. And it's so packed that. You know, you can kind of like, you know, jump from time to time like that, whereas someone else might be working slowly and surely through the whole way. Mm -hmm. And so that's always just very interesting because there is like, especially when you're hitting a mark or you feel like you're, you know, you're really just you're just hitting your stride. You just kind of want every last painting to be in a show. But I think, yeah, I think it's something to be said about being focused enough to kind of being able to uh, step back from it and, and see how it's working out, you know, relative to everything else. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. Did I cut you off? You have an exhibition uh, coming up at, at the painting center. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's going to be similarities to what, you're, what you've been previously working on. But is there anything specific for this show that, I don't know, has, has kind of come up in terms of preparing for it? Kind of. I think maybe to the viewer. I, I'm not sure if it would be um, apparent, but... I'm starting to try to uh, focus a bit more on the gestural aspect of what I do and incorporate more gesture in my work. And it's still, um, or restrained, I guess is the word I'm looking for, insofar as the passages of the more gestural passages and the more distressed impromptu passages in the paintings are pretty much always kind of... Um, I don't like to use the the term locked in because it sounds so negative, but they're, they're always accompanied by, perhaps that's a better way of putting it, more uh, say tighter or, or flatter, hard-edged passages. But the, I'm trying to find ways to incorporate more gesture in my work because I, I really, I, I don't want to make geometric abstraction, you know, and, and I'm the artist, so I don't know how these things communicate on online or translate but when people see them in real life they they always say to me like like nine times out of ten when i get a comment it's about those little moments like oh my god there's like this beautiful little moment right there where something is you know there's a little gestural piece or there's a little bit of transparency that is revealing something more distressed underneath so those are those little magic moments. And I, I want to make sure that those are communicating and I want to make sure that those are having their say in the work. I don't see it taking over at this point because I love edges and places where things meet. And 
it's like that thing that I was talking about, about contradicting deep space, you know, to create illusionistic space and then to contradict it with a, a flat plane that pulls that space forward in the picture plane. I think that always happens with a straight edge. I don't know if you can really do that quite so effectively with a, with a kind of softer, more painterly mark. Um, so at least for now, I, I, I see those straight edges coming in, but I'm focusing on that more expressionistic mark making and trying to have that play a more important role in the work. By me being able to do this, I kind of am able to investigate, you know, this problem that somebody's been working on for years and years. And so I especially respond to that in, in some of the work where, you know, they become more hard-edged at times or sometimes kind of become like that looser, you know, kind of quality like you're talking about. But I especially like being able to see them together. But it's it's just really interesting to see how that gets explored through, you know, the course of a painting or a series of paintings, especially. And so it's, again, really something that makes them really fun to look at. And of course, uh, makes me jealous that I don't have a, a private jet that I can just, you know, just zap <laughs> right over there and, and, and see them. Well, I mean, likewise, because you're looking at your work, you know, you're obviously a very proficient technician. You're, you're a very good uh, painter in terms of you know, what you're able to do technically, in addition to um, some of the ideas that you have. Those are the things that I really respond to in your work is, you know, where you've got this influence of your plein air painting and your very obvious ability to work very spontaneously and, and, and very gesturally and loosely. And then you've got these planes that are so flat. And I love those areas in your work where like I'm thinking of some of the, the gas station paintings where there'll be something missing. And I love that uh, what in when I teach two-dimensional design, I tell my students is implied line or closure where you have something missing, but your eye fills it in. Um, you know, what's implied by the planes that you do put in. And then you've got these colors that just read like they're perfectly parallel to the picture plane and flat against the surface of the canvas. And then you've got these other, like some, like it looks like the painting's been wiped, these trees that kind of blur out or very loose foliage. That ex it really excites me, you know, and I thought, why is that? You know, is there something in my genetic makeup? Is there something in my psychology that causes me to respond to that? I don't know what the answer to that is, but I, I totally see it in your work. Thank you. It's it's interesting because as obvious as it is, the more that you're talking about it, I'm just kind of like, yeah, yeah, I totally see the the similarities that I hadn't thought about either, too, you know? Yeah, it's 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 neat, you know, when there can be work that's so seemingly different and yet have so many similarities. And it's something about like the, I don't know, just these really small little bits that um, I could talk on, on and on and on about, <laughs> but at the same time... Um, that could be a really dull conversation for people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but you and I will be will be you know completely enthralled. So again, just to be specific about this show, so um, could you tell us you know when when the show is? It is it's a two person show at the Painting Center. It's uh, me and uh, a colleague Marianne Gagnier, who is also actually interestingly or not interestingly enough, depending on who you are. She is a uh, landscape painter who uh, became an abstract painter. And I think she goes back and forth between plein air and abstraction. And um, I, I wanted to show with her because I, I think it'll be an exciting pairing of, of work because she also uses very intense color sometimes what I feel is similar color to my own, but she, her work is very gestural. It's very kind of explosive. It reminds me of those, um, that phase in de Kooning's career when he first moved to Long Island and he did those, those paintings of, with giant brush strokes of the Long Island landscape. And so I'm interested to see how our work comes together in terms of what is similar about it and what's very different about it. And I think they should, probably if it goes the way I want it to highlight uh, each other very nicely. 
So the show opens on January 28th and the opening reception is January 30th and it runs until February 22nd. I mean, it's, it's exciting, you know, and especially since I, th- I think you can appreciate, I mean, especially when you kind of get into this mode where you've been, you know, working and working and working on something and then you, you finally get that kind of payoff at the end too, where you're able to kind of go in and, and see all these things up on the wall. So it's, uh, it's got to be kind of an exciting time that you're drawing in on the, <laughs> the finish line, I guess. Yeah. And I think that that's what you said is, is really what you have to keep in mind as the payoff, you know, the payoff is seeing this stuff on the walls because if you, if you expect anything more than that, you're probably going to be let down. Right. <laughs> you always have these hopes that, a show is going to turn into, you know, I'm going to get a Chelsea gallery and I'm going to sell out the show and, you know, all these great things are going to come from it. And so, of course, you can help feel let down if your hopes are so high. But, you know, I, I feel like as much as everybody, everybody gets positive feedback and everybody gets negative feedback and, um, you know, of course, you want people to love what you do and it's, it's a great feeling when they do. But nobody knows your work as intimately as you do. And, and actually that's why I'm always thrilled when people like find that little moment in the painting and say, Oh, you know, I love that little piece there because I feel like you spend so much time with these things. Nobody knows them as well as you do. And yet when you put them on the wall, you kind of have this expectation, like you want people to fall in love with them like you do, but they, they don't, have the opportunity to spend that kind of time with the paintings. So I just want to see the work up on the wall. Of course, I want more than that. But, you know, what I'm excited about is seeing what this work looks like in a, in a nice white space with clean walls and a professional setting. Well, it's very exciting. And um, again, I hope everybody goes and, and checks out the opening. It seems like it'd be an amazing show to see. So Again, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to speak with me. Again, it seems like we could talk about <laughs> the most minute kind of little details forever, but, um, you know, it's a pleasure to learn about your work a bit and, uh, you know, to learn about you. Well, thank you so much, David. Thank you so much for having me. And, um, you know, I want to be kept up to date with any shows that you have and hope that, you know, you will be showing your work on the East Coast because I don't have a jet to come to Illinois and see what you're up to, but I really, you know, speaking of, of surface, I'm very interested to see your work in real life. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. You, you, you feel like, because you know, your work that it's obvious, you know, all these little things, but then you see somebody else's work that you've only seen digitally and you realize, wow, you know, it's so different. There's so many things that I couldn't pick up on online. So I hope that I have the opportunity to see your work in person as well. Thanks once again to Suzanne for joining us. It was a pleasure. And remember that you can see her exhibition that opens at the Painting Center January 28th and it runs through February 22nd. It's called Greater and Lesser Vehicles. You will also want to check out our website if you can't make it, SuzanneCammon.com. So please go ahead and check that out. And since you're going to do that anyways, please head over to my website to find out more about my artwork and what I am interested in, davidlinaway.com. Some of my recent artworks include some of the gas station paintings and some plein air works that we were discussing as well as some other things, so please go check it out. Please remember to check out all the other great interviews that you missed on studiobreak.com. Again, you can access them all through the archive function. Each of them have the lengthy interviews, the images of their work, and links to their websites, and also a link to the iTunes store where you can subscribe to the podcast. We do ask a big favor in that if you like this podcast, please leave us some comments, some feedback. It generally helps others find this podcast, so please leave us some comments in the iTunes store. Of course, you can always help us monetarily by using the donate button, but certainly you can easily help us by spreading the word with all of the share buttons. And of course, if you're on Facebook, please like our page. Again, we provide previews from some of the guests that are coming up on Studio Break. We make show announcements as well as opportunity announcements and things like that. So please like our page there. You can follow us on Twitter at Studio Break. You can follow us on Tumblr, studio-break.tumblr.com. So please check 
check us out there. We do have a couple show reminders. Melissa Wilkinson's Frontiers and Steve Adair's Leaf Forms opens up this weekend, January 25th. So please go ahead and check it out this Saturday again from 7 to 9. And also check out the recent interviews if you can't make the exhibition. We just had them on studio break, so great interviews. Check them out. Our good friend Bill Conger also just had an exhibition that opened up, Coming Dark, Selected Works from 2004 to 2014. It runs through March 7th at the Eagle Gallery at Murray State University in Kentucky. It's not to miss, so please go ahead and check that out. Bill has been featured on the podcast a number of times. You can check out his website, BillConger.com, and we are going to have him coming up, so we'll be able to hear all about it right here on Studio Break. We're also happy to inform you that Heather Mickelson will be on the podcast next week. Again, her show is at 65 grand right now. It's called Now Slices, and it runs through February 15th. So a lot of great stuff to check out. All right, that's all the show that we have for today. We'll talk to you real soon. Thanks for listening.